at this point in time, there's a lot of fear around slave uprisings. And so the first thing that a lot of people thought when they saw the flames is that this was a fire that had been intentionally set by enslaved people to burn down uh, Richmond's, you know, wealthy slaveholders uh, in this theater, um, which was not the case. But the fact that it was first thing on everyone's minds lets you know about um, just how fearful people were at that time after some of these popular uprisings in the South. Welcome to the Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson. And this is the fifth episode that focuses on a historic fire. Last month, I got to sit down with some firefighters who were at a historic Petersburg, Virginia fire that took the life of Sergeant Mike Goff. But in this episode, the fire occurred in Richmond, Virginia in 1811, and it was a bit more challenging finding someone who was at that fire, to be sure. But I was lucky enough to meet an independent historian who wrote an interesting book about the Richmond Theater fire that occurred December 26, 1811. Meredith Henny Baker's book, The Richmond Theater Fire, Early America's First Great Disaster, not only tells the story of the fire, it also captures interesting stories about the people and the culture of Richmond in the early 19th century. This is episode 42 with freelance historian Meredith Henny Baker. Enjoy. Uh, first off, let's uh, let's learn a little about you. A little bit about you. I said I was kind of questioning where you a historian because you're an author and uh, your bio mentions that you've done some work uh, in and around museums as well. So, uh, what does an independent hi- historian do? So, an independent historian is someone who is uh, not affiliated with a particular uh, institute of higher education. So, for example. Um, I have a graduate degree in history. I went to William and Mary and studied in the history program there. Uh, And then afterwards, I went to work in um, educational administration, teaching. um, And I also uh, did some work with museums. I've done um, contract work, designing historical curriculum. Uh, And most recently, I've was awarded a research fellowship from the Virginia Humanities. And so I've spent um, part of this past year uh, in residence at the Library of Virginia doing research on a new project that uh, that I'm hoping will be a book. Um, but that's uh, it's a little bit of a non-traditional uh, path, but it's it's been uh, really rewarding, and I love that I get to dig into Virginia history and share that with people. Yeah, you, you did share it with this book. It's a, it's a fantastic book, and it's not just a book about the fire. And uh, one of the interesting things I found about it, it's not like I said, not just about the fire, it's about everything around the fire and the people and the stories of the people and the, the times uh, in Richmond in the early 1800s and even into some of the stuff about fire codes and fire safety and the theater and the church uh, at the time. So maybe we can dig into some of that. But uh, what, what got you interested in, in this particular fire? I mean, it's, it's not one that in the fire service anyway that people really recognize. We, under, we see things like the Iroquois, uh, theater fire, um, Triangle Shirtwaist fire, the things that happened more in the early 20th century, I guess. And this one predates that by about 100 years or so. So what got you interested in this fire? So uh, when I was in graduate school, I was looking around for a topic to do my, uh, my big thesis on. And I was looking through a collection of sermons, actually, and I found a sermon from England about the Richmond Theater Fire, and then I found a sermon from Pennsylvania about the Richmond Theater Fire, and then I found a sermon from uh, New England, and I thought, what are, why is everybody from all over writing about Richmond? And so I started to dig into it and found out that this fire in Richmond, even though it didn't have the kind of death counts of the later Brooklyn Theater Fire or Iroquois Theater, um, it still was considered to be an international incident. And then it made headlines all across newspapers in America and even across the Atlantic. And the reason was because of the 
people who were killed in it. The number of women that were killed was really uh, made an impression on folks. The fact that the governor was killed, the fact that um, former legislator was killed. Uh, there were a lot of high-profile people, and there's kind of a, mm, I don't know, a little bit of a, a I don't know how, quite how to phrase it, but there's a comment that somebody makes later where they say, uh, you know that many people were killed in this this fire comparatively, but they were so important, and they were they were wealthy, and they were connected. And, and he talks about the Brooklyn Theater, and he says, "Well, I guess there's a lot of them, and they were somebody's friends." And so it's kind of kind of shoves the death count aside, you know, like the people in Richmond were so much more important; it matters so much more. But but really, I mean, in a in a um, sort of class obsessed early Republic America, it was a big deal that so many people whose names were well-known across America um, were immediately impacted by or killed in this fire. Yeah, and I, I, I remember in that phrase of that article or whatever they were talking about, the Brooklyn Fire and comparing yeah. it, it's minor, even though it had a bigger number count attached to it than Richmond's fire. So yeah. How, so how did the, why were the churches so engaged or why were the sermons so attached to this fire that even across the country across the country and across the world so i think that ministers did then what they do now and they sort of pick and choose uh from current events to try to make the point that they want to make so in the case of some of the sermons from quakers they were quick to connect this disaster to slavery and to say virginia is a slaveholding state this looks to be a judge like a judgment of god on the practice of slavery. And then uh, folks from up north who were from more reformed or Calvinist backgrounds, they looked at Virginia's way of life with their, um, for well, of course, they did then what they do now. And we have our legislative session, right? So this was their legislative session, which was also when all the parties happened. So um, th the December, January, February time in Virginia was full of dances and balls and drinking and parties and gambling. And so folks from more stricter Christian traditions from up north pointed their finger at Richmond and said, these people were wasting time. These people were throwing away their lives, spending uh, frivolous, you know, spending their time frivolously at the theater. And so this was a judgment of God on them. And so I think that depending on who the ministers were, they were sort of pointing out their, their, um, sort of pet sins and then linking Virginia to that and trying to make the case that this is what happens to people who engage in these kind of activities. Uh, so the wrath, wrath of God came upon them, I guess. Indeed. Was, that, was that their, uh, yes. their approach? Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned there were a lot of um, dignitaries who were involved in this fire. This, the other thing that struck me was that it wasn't just dignitaries in the upper crust of Richmond who were involved. There were there were slaves in the theater as well, wasn't it? Is it um, what kind of folks were at the theater, and what did the theater have to do with the social scene in Richmond at the time? I think that's a really interesting question because the theater was really a mixing bowl, so everybody came to the theater. If you could scrape together the money to go to the theater, you went. And so um, it was stratified in the way that uh, that it was set up. So if you can picture it, in the very bottom level, if you walked in, there were lots of seats that had um, backless benches. And those were sort of the everybody seats. They were middle class, whatever. You could you sit down in, in this section. And then the box seats went up the sides and went up the back. And they were like little private compartments. And those were where people would sit with their friends. Maybe they'd hold eight or 10 people. Those were more expensive. That's, those, that's where wealthy folks sat. And then up in the very top, they had sort of a balcony um, a balcony seating area and that's where folks who were considered to be you wanted to keep these people sort of out of sight so that's where um, prostitutes or that's where people who were really poor or um, that's where they would put enslaved people they could purchase seats to sit up there so that it was a very um, visually segregated theater it was open to everybody but you knew your place and you knew where you had to go sit so the it was still segregation was happening in the eighteen teens. Yes, a bit more economic. Oh, okay. <laughs> right, splitting people up by um, splitting people up by uh, how much they could afford. Hey, let's talk about Richmond at the time. Um, I, I noticed a quote in the book that said it went something to the effect that this was, um, oh, what was it? It was 
the city of vice and there was gambling establishments and horse races and horse tracks and what what was the environment like you said this is um coming into the legislative session in virginia it's off season for the farmers so the farmers could come and can be part of this social uh, construct around richmond what was life like around richmond in that time so um there's a book that i love it's it's uh it's called Albion Seed, and it breaks down uh, American colonists into different groups and talks about how the different parts of uh, Great Britain that they came from affected their culture when they arrived here. It's uh, David Hackett Fisher, I think, is the author. And uh, when he talks about Virginia, he talks about how so many of the people who came here were these sort of... Um, wealthy sons who weren't the firstborns, right? So they're accustomed to a certain way of life, but they don't really have the money to swing it in or the land in Great Britain. So they come here and they bring with them this kind of gentrified sense and they set up their plantations, et cetera. So um, they, uh, Virginia at the time was a place that really prioritized um, more showy wealth than other parts of the country did at the time. And, uh, very much uh, socializing, um, parties. This was all part of, well, there's a famous quote from Philip Fith, uh, Fithian who comes down from Princeton to tutor a family in Virginia. And he said, these Virginians will dance or die. They're just obsessed with dancing. And he can't get used to it. Things are much more strict where he's from. So, um, so, so I guess maybe the best analogy would be like a New Orleans. It's like a cross between Washington, D.C. and New Orleans. It's got all the, the best and brightest political minds of the time. And then it's also got this party town reputation. So um, D.C. Is, is dismissed as kind of a backwater. Um, that's not where you went to see and be seen and to mix with influential people. You came to Richmond. And if you wanted to party, um, you could go to New Orleans. But the place to be was really Richmond at the time. So it had this national reputation. What, what drove that? How did it get to get that reputation? Um, well, I think that, I mean, if you, if, you look at, uh, if you look at this time period in America and you look at who are the presidents during this time and who are the people who are um, the power holders in America at this time, a lot of Virginians, disproportionately Virginians were there. So... Um, this and this is also a time too where you're seeing a lot of wealth accrued and um, the plantation economies and so you've got wealth you've got power um, and people are um, want to be close to that and that's where they were mm -hmm. well let's let's talk a little bit about the theater itself and uh, that this theater event happened December 26 night. 1811 we'll say 1911 a few times here so I'll correct myself <laughs> it's 1811 yeah um, what what was the theater? like what what kind of a, a venue was this what was the the production going on and, and uh, how did how was that part of the social scene in, in Richmond at the time sure so uh so the theater was I don't know we think about when we go to the theater you go you pay your money you see one show and then you go home but um this was a great big building on what's now Broad Street um, and it was kind of multi-purpose. It had been used for different things in the past for large meetings and get-togethers from constitutional conventions, things like that. Um, it had been a school previously, um, but it's just kind of this giant uh, building that could hold a lot of people, it hold hundreds of people. And they had uh, set it up, built it up so it had a nice stage, it had these box seats, et cetera. Um, but it was still largely unfinished. So when people are describing it afterwards, they talk about the fact that this place, we'd go there, we'd see these shows, but it always felt a little scary. Like it was a tinderbox kind of place. The walls aren't finished. It's got um, pine ceilings and there's rosin oozing out of it in the summertime. Then it gets all hard in the winter and it, they tacked up painted canvas to try to make it look a little bit more presentable but it's not a it's not a fancy building it's not a nice building it's not a well-finished building it's just a large building that can hold a lot of people it's been adapted for the theater and when folks would go they would come and if you look at the the um, theater programs from the time they'd have one show and then they'd take a break and there'd be songs there'd be dances there was a tightrope walker in the theater <laughs> troupe there were jugglers um 
they had, uh, there was one popular act where a guy would dress up as an old grandmother and he would sing a song. And then um, they would do all sorts of different uh, little mini acts in between the main shows. There were generally two main productions. So when people went to the theater, they'd go in after dinner and they would stay until midnight. It was, a, it was, it was an it was all an night thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned that the, it was kind of an unfinished building. Obviously, this is 1811. No building codes were around back then. Um, really, who was, was there any kind of regulation on how many people could be in there, how many tickets they could sell, how the building had to be configured? You know, today we worry about exit space and sprinklers and the building construction, but was there any of that going on at that time? Well, I, you, when you read people's accounts afterwards, they they talk about the fact that there were more people than it should have been. So there was a there was a number of people that was the you know considered the capacity number. But everyone acknowledges that they went over that on this particular night. It's a popular show. The man who um, uh, Louis Wei Girardin, who did the uh, translation for the main show, he was a local boy. Um, he, he he wasn't. He was not born, he was born in France, but he lived locally in Richmond and he was a popular headmaster of a prestigious school. And so people came to support him. And, uh, and so there was a, a, a lot of interest locally in showing up. And so there were, there were more people maybe even than normal who were there that night. So everyone, everyone admitted it was crowded. It was past, over, over past what Past whatever expected. the capacity was, yeah. 1811, obviously no electric lights. What were they using? And I'm going down the path of what probably started the fire here. What was the lighting like in this, yeah. this venue? So when they descri- they describe um, uh, lanterns that were stuck to the, like sconces that were along the wall, and those house lights would have been on for the whole thing. They they didn't turn them off or dim them. It was just um, the main reason you went to the theater. Uh, a lot of people went to the theater was to see their friends and to talk with them. And so the play was kind of like having TV on in the background. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the house lights would stay on and you would watch the show and then maybe you'd turn to your friends and ignore the show for a while. And the house lights would enable you to see your friends. Um, so the house lights stayed on in these sconces along the wall, but then also they would use flames actually in the set pieces. And so for example, we know that in one of the, um, in one of the plays, they had a chandelier that they would pull up and down, and it was lit entirely by candles. And is that that what uh, contributed to the fire? That what started the fire? Yes, that was so. After the fire, they sent a they sent a co- committee in to do a full investigation of what was the source of the fire, and uh, the <laughs> the um, crew member behind the set who raised the chandelier was never mentioned my name at any point, um, but this person. Uh, they the crew admitted that this uh the pulley system had not been working properly and the person who pulled the um lit chandelier up into the fly space of the theater with all the um ropes and all of the oil painted scenery um said that he had heard a thought he heard a command from someone saying lift it up and so he pulled it um, and it promptly set the entire backstage on fire. And that's what, that's what started the pandemonium. It did. It did. Now, at this point in time, there's a lot of fear around slave uprisings. And so the first thing that a lot of people thought when they saw the flames is that this was a fire that had been intentionally set by enslaved people to burn down uh, Richmond's you know, wealthy slaveholders. Uh, in this theater, um, which was not the case, but the fact that it was first thing on everyone's minds lets you know about, um, just how fearful people were at that time after, um, after some of these popular uprisings in the South. Yeah. And that, that's interesting. But one thing I picked up out of the book also is that fires weren't an uncommon thing. Um, fires that had fatalities certainly were, but fire was almost like a recognize this is going to happen at the time. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Just uh, so I, I pulled up a whole bunch of newspapers because I thought I want to really immerse myself in the context of the time. So I'm not just going to read the articles that have to do with this fire. I'm going to read a lot about just 
flip through the pages and see what's going on. And there are fires all the time. I mean, the newspapers are just full of accounts of fires. Somebody's house burning down, a whole row of houses burning down, a, a stable burning down. So that there are fires constantly. But um, very rarely are there fatalities associated with them, certainly not in large numbers. And, you know, a lot of times they would, you know, if it was a row of houses or it was in the city, they'd pull the house down or they'd, you know... Um, destroy something so that it wouldn't spread. But often people had sufficient time to get out. This was a rare case and the building's construction contributed to the disaster for sure. So, so what, what was it about the construction that, um, I'm guessing it didn't allow people to get out effectively or quickly? No, it didn't. Um, so one of the things that I'm pulling over this picture, um, I, I worked with an artist. We pieced together based on descriptions from eyewitnesses what the theater looked like inside because we did not have a, a picture of it. Nobody has drawn one. Um, but one of the things that a lot of people noted, especially those who were in the box seats, is that the, the hallways were so narrow. They said you could hardly squeeze past another person in the hallways. So number one, you have hundreds of people that are sitting in these box seats three levels high and the corridors directly outside where they would need to exit and enter were super narrow. And um, certainly, this is, these aren't, this is not the days of hoop skirts, so that wouldn't have been an issue. But people wore really long, men wore really long frock coats. Women wore these really long kind of Grecian-inspired dresses. So a lot of people write about getting their clothes stomped on or pieces of clothing ripped off or they got stuck and somebody stepped on their clothes and they couldn't get out. And so there's uh, the constraints of the corridors. And then you also have uh, only one main exit. Um, a lot of the people who were sitting in the cheap seats could get out quickly, um, but the because people, they were on the ground level, is yeah. that the, that the cheap seats, those benches mm -hmm. you were talking about? Yeah, the bench seats. They could uh, they could get out. They could jump up on stage and go out the side exits. Um, they could run out the front. But the people who were in the box seats, there was one main stairwell, and then for once, all three levels. Yes, for okay. all three levels. And when they got to the bottom of the stairs, the door opened inward. So you had all these people pushing to get out, but the door, they were trapped because the door opened inward and they couldn't, the momentum just kept building more and more people pressing against the doors as they were coming down the stairs. So it was just a death trap. And nobody could get out. Mm -mm. What, um, and you, in the book, you, you, you chronicle a lot of the stories of the individuals, some that made it out and some that didn't. Is, are there any of those, I'll call them characters for lack of a better term, any of those people who were involved that stand out to you as is a truly interesting story or one that's your favorite story to talk about? Yeah, well, I, I centered the book around the the narrative of Caroline Homazel Thornton, who I think is just really fascinating because she um, she's connected to all these issues. She's uh, from the religious revival that happened afterwards to being involved in the fire itself, to being a member of um, the really wealthy, this wealthy class in Richmond at the time. She's the, um, she's, uh, orphaned and she's taken in by a family in uh, that she's related to in uh, in Richmond and she is their uh, darling teenage daughter and she is surrounded by friends and wealth um, she is uh, has just lost her fiance and the fact that she's about 15 years old when this happened makes that a little disturbing but <laughs> <laughs> but anyways um, it's President Madison's nephew too but anyways so she loses this fiance maybe she was only 14 way too young to have a fiance I'm a mom I should know this but anyways <laughs> um, so she's sitting in the theater that night and she's surrounded by her friends but she's feeling very blue and uh, there is a um, local doctor who's been trying to get her attention for some months and she knows he's interested in her he's about 10 years older than her a widower and um, she's not having any of it um, she would prefer to sit and be a morose teenager about um, her fiance so anyways uh, she is rescued by this doctor during the fire and additionally when her uncle who is her adopted father um, has a really serious and grotesque compound fracture after in his leg after he um, after he falls. Uh, he was in the fire. He as was well. in the fire as well. Yeah, um, this doctor pays very close attention to him and um, makes sure that he patches him up and he's there every day, even though he's really busy. And so Caroline eventually. Um, decides to marry this doctor. And so I don't know that he exactly wins her over, um, but she definitely feels a sense of obligation after everything he's done for her family. And so she does marry him. So that's at least one marriage that comes out of this. Oh. <laughs> out of this. She marries her rescuer. Yeah, it was interesting because you 
the the narrative, and I think you, you drew from her journal or a letter or something that said, "Well, he's not a bad he's not a bad guy, so I guess I'll marry him." Is kind of the right. impression I got of it. Yeah. It's it's not it, mm, yeah. <laughs> it's not a rousing endorsement. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, best yeah, that's the best I can do. Okay. I know. Uh, one of the other interesting characters I, I kind of looked at a little closer was this fellow Gilbert Hunt. He was a, a slave at the time of the the fire, and he was almost. Um, a hero to it. What, what was his story? So Gilbert Hunt is one of those uh, really fascinating characters. And one thing that we're really lucky to have is a photograph. It's one of the earliest photographs of an African-American in Richmond. And it's Gilbert Hunt. And he's sitting um, uh, very stoically on a chair and he has his blacksmith hammer in his hand. And he was an enslaved blacksmith. He was highly skilled. Um, he had his own shop in Richmond. And um, he as a result of his blacksmith work had been slowly saving up money to buy his own freedom and buy his family's freedom. But at the time that this fire happened, he was still enslaved. His wife's enslaved living with another family. Um, and the family that she's living with, uh, the Mayo family, they have a daughter named Louisa. She's 16 years old. She's been teaching Gilbert how to read, which is kind of a dicey proposition because teaching enslaved people how to read is uh, at various points of Virginia history, a crime punishable by jail time. So, uh, but she, he says she had been teaching him how to read. Um, he is very attached to her. And when he goes over to visit his wife, he's told by the family, they're hysterical. Their daughter's at the fire. They hear that it's, there's a fire. Their daughter's at the theater. They don't know where she is. So he runs to the theater and he's looking for Louisa. That's the He wasn't at the fire. He he responded to. No, he was at church actually. (laughs) So, um, yeah. So he writes about how he's coming home from church. Um, The church was close to the, to the fire. So I think he'd come home from church and then he heard about the fire. So he runs back and he begins to look for Louisa and uh, he catches the eye of another of a, a doctor in town, Dr. McCaw, who apparently is just this kind of burly monster of a guy. And he's standing, kind of straddling a window, and he shouts to Gilbert. He knows Gilbert. People know Gilbert. Everyone knows him. Um, he's he's a, a character, people pe- well-known in Richmond and a leader in the African-American community. So Dr. McCaw calls to him, Gilbert, come on. And so Gilbert goes over there, and they begin this relay system, and they are – McCaw throws a woman out the window and Gilbert Hunt catches her. And uh, and at one point he catches Dr. McCaw's sister, who somebody remarks is, uh, she has the, uh, she's a feminine version of the doctor himself. And apparently she bowls Gilbert Hunt right <laughs> over. He, he, he's, he's on the ground, he recovers. And then he goes on to catch more women. About a dozen women in total are rescued before McCaw starts to feel the flames himself and has to jump out the window. Um, he fractures his leg. Gilbert Hunt drags him to safety and then basically tears apart a fence paling in order to create a splint for his leg. So Gilbert Hunt, cool under pressure, um, hero not just for all the women's lives that he saved, but also for saving the life of Dr. McCaw. One of the early firefighter paramedics, it sounds like. Absolutely, yeah. And, and he goes on. This, this is, uh, I don't know, several years later, he's working as the blacksmith in the penitentiary, and they have a fire there. He winds up saving a number of the those inmates in that penitentiary as well, didn't he? Yes, I think that is, yes, it's 1823. So um, Benjamin Henry Latrobe, who's the uh, famous architect, he has constructed this penitentiary, and uh, apparently he didn't put in enough fireproofing because it catches on fire. And Gilbert Hunt, in, in a, uh, it's a biography of him that's written um, by a man named Philip Barrett. Um, he writes about that night, and he mentions that he was a member of the fire department. So at this point, he's enslaved. So that's really interesting to me that the uh, this sort of professionalizing group of volunteer firefighters would have included enslaved people. But I think Gilbert Hunt, with his engineering know-how with his you know strength and his uh you know proven ability to stay calm in a disaster situation would have been a great you know addition to their team so anyways he goes with them to the penitentiary and he uh has you know sets up this whole innovative rescue where he helps these people who are trapped in a part of the building um helps them to safety that's pretty amazing talk a little bit about his you know see you said he's enslaved and you know it's probably part of my ignorance about understanding what slavery was like back then you say he's enslaved but he has a blacksmith shop is he working that blacksmith shop for his 
for his owners or how does that how is that working and, and ultimately he got his freedom as a result of that didn't he yeah so so you see this happening with certain enslaved people who have a very particular skill so maybe they're um you know they're milliners or they're um blacksmiths or um they're sailors and so they would sometimes be um rented out to other um to other people to do a particular job um and the you know, quote unquote, owner would then get a cut. Um, but then the skilled laborer would also get part of that money. Um, and so this was an existing arrangement within slavery for skilled workers um, that did allow them to do some work independently uh, and at other times to uh, kind of work outside and go travel to different places and do skilled labor. So he was blacksmithing for his owners and he, this whatever other work he could do, he could sell his wares to whomever. Yeah, kind of yeah. Like, we know he we know he um, created uh, um, parts for uh, cannons in the War of eighteen twelve, um, and also he notes that uh, sort of with some sense of irony that he had helped to forge some of the chains for the prisoners that he helped to rescue. And another interesting story there. That's and there's all there's a bunch of those in this book, and there's all all the stories around those people, both before and after and during the fire. So uh, if anybody's interested in that from a history perspective, I'd say get the book and delve into that because those stories are pretty rich with where they come from and how they are. Um, there's other characters in there. There's uh, there's veterans of the Revolutionary War who were involved in this fire. Um, forget there's an officer from the naval academy yeah lieutenant james gibbon and, yeah and the naval academy actually paid tribute because of the fire and this was not the naval academy back then this was actually in the navy yard at dc this is before i guess in annapolis became a thing right yeah um yeah but the uh u.s navy they wore black armbands uh after his death he was a uh, lieutenant in the navy and uh, I, I believe so i don't I have not been able to find, if anybody knows where this is, um, the National Archives uh, doesn't think it's in existence anymore, but uh, it seems that he was one of the sailors who was um, captured in Tripoli. And oh, wow. yeah, so back in 1804 and uh, around that time, and uh, made his way back to, you know, escaped, made his way back to Richmond. Some sources say he only had one arm. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but he, yeah, he was involved in the fire and he's famous because he, that was another love story that was really played up. Lots of, you know, fictionalized versions of this showing up in magazines later on, but he's in love with the girl who lives next door, across the street, whatever. Um, Sally Conyers. And so the night of the fire, um, he says to his friends, you know, go help yourselves and leave Sally to me because Sally's passed out and is helpless. So he flings her over his shoulder um, and they later find the two of them and recognize their bodies. They identify him by, I think he has a button or something, and they identify her and um, by a necklace that she's wearing. And so the two of them die together, you know, the, the, the two in love. The tragic um, love story. Tragic love story, exactly. Yes, Lieutenant Gibbon. <laughs> There's, there's other, I guess, maybe fictional accounts of what happened, and there's another name in the book uh, tied to Richmond that I think that um, there was a, f a fictionalized version of it, and Edgar, the story is Edgar Allan Poe's mother passed away in this fire, and, and he's closely connected to the incident, but that's not the case, is it? It's just, so um, Edgar Allan Poe, of course he has a flair for the dramatic, and yeah. he comes by honestly because both of his parents are actors, and his father at the time of the fire has vanished. Nobody knows where he's gone. He's out of the picture. Um, and his mother, up through that December, um, had been acting with this theater troupe. The theater troupe is really interesting. It's like a super troupe. It's based in South Carolina, and they have this huge um, collection of set pieces and costumes and whatever, and they, the, they break this huge theater troupe into smaller groups, and they sort of cycle throughout the South, and they put on shows. So they sort of collaborate, and they've all got this great stash of equipment set up and whatever, and they just sort of go and do their show at a certain area. So anyways, his, his mother, Eliza Poe, um, is one of the actresses in this troupe, and she's in Richmond through December, um, probably contracts tuberculosis, um, and is dead by the time the theater fire happens, but she's only been dead for a couple of weeks. Um, but Edgar Allan Poe will go on to tell people in later years that his mother was a victim of the fire. And sometimes he says his father was a victim of the fire too, and gives himself a more dramatic backstory than he actually had. But, um, but yes, he, he was, um, I, I believe he, 
he may have been in the city that night. He may have been um, traveling with the family that took him in, um, with the Allen family. He may have been traveling with them at the time too, but he definitely lived in Richmond. And so this tragedy, he was about four at the time, this tragedy would have been a major part of his childhood. Mm. Well, there's other other dignitaries who were involved and in, in we know that we're involved the governor of virginia at the time he hadn't been governor very long had he no. he was uh, he Poor was man. killed in the fire yeah yeah um george smith so uh, like i said there's a lot of a lot of uh virginians who are in washington dc at the time and so as uh you see all this turnover happen so a virginian gets elected to a powerful position in washington dc he goes back and pulls you know friends and cohorts from Virginia to go work with him on his administration and so uh, you see then these different state positions and mayors and stuff you know go up to DC so um, this was a turnover time and so George Smith uh, had only had the governorship because there'd been a lot of turnover in the last year um, there have been a couple different people who've had the position of governor um, George Smith had had it for a couple weeks at that point uh, when he was in the, in the uh, theater with his family and he does not make it out alive. I don't know the exact details of it. Like most of the men of standing who are involved in the theater fire, there are these stories that grew up around him about him escaping safely, but then going back in to save a loved one and heroically dying. So I don't know if that was the case or not, but that's the story that's told afterward. Yeah, well. Well, in the in the aftermath of this, this is certainly long long before we were able to were able to do the investigational techniques we have now. And there's stories in here about how they identified the people who were found in the rubble of the the, the theater. Talk a little bit about what the aftermath was like um, after the fire's over. With a lot of people escaped, some people assisted other people in escaping, but seventy. 72 was the ultimate number? Yeah. So again, um, you know, they aren't taking names or anything like that when people are going in. And this is the legislative session. So you have a lot of out-of-towners who might be unaccounted for. Or their families wouldn't have known where they were that night. But the, the, about the, the number uh, is, is 72 for that night. And then a number of people died in the days and weeks afterwards, you know, immediately of, of immediate causes that were connected to to the fire but you would have seen on the site so it smolders for weeks um there are thousands of bones uh the fire just burned incredibly hot and so there really aren't a lot of recognizable remains but there are some in fact there's one that's held by the um, virginia historical society they have or the virginia museum of history and culture now they have a pocket watch um, a girl named Maria Nelson had brought her family pocket watch along mm -hmm. with her, and this sort of semi-melted pocket watch is held in the collection. Um, there were articles in the newspaper, like lost and found articles that run afterwards about glasses being found or, or buttons or buckles and things like that. Um, Are they trying to connect those articles with somebody at the... They might have related. Yeah, they might have been, or they might have been hoping that maybe somebody survived and this is their pocketbook or oh. something that was located, and could they come and get it at the newspaper office? Um, but yeah, and and there's a there's a little boy who, well, he's a grown man by the time he writes this, but he writes a recollection of being a little boy at the time of the fire, and he and his friends kind of poking around in it to try to see what they could find. Could they find any you know bones, or could they find any um, treasures or money or anything that was hidden in there? So. Um, so yeah, it's a giant smoking wreckage site. And, uh, at least for the, I mentioned him earlier, Louis Wade Jardine, the playwright, um, who does the translation for the play that night, his, uh, wife and, and, uh, child are killed in the theater fire and he lives nearby. And the fact that the, the smell of the fire and the sight of the fire, um, becomes so overwhelming to him that he eventually, he just leaves Richmond. Um, he has these articles in the newspaper like uh, school's going to reopen soon and then it doesn't. I promise to my subscribers and my students that the school yeah, will he, reopen. He ran a school, is that he right? He did, yeah. yeah. He ran the school. It was very popular and um, he had a women's program, a girls program and a boys program and um, and a lot of the you know wealthy folks in town sent their kids to him and he really, really gave it a good effort to try to stay in town and reopen his school but it was just too overwhelming for him to stay in Richmond after that loss and have this horrible reminder of the fire. It took them, it took them over a year before they finally pulled everything down and, um, got the spot. 
um, so that they could, you know, begin to rebuild the church that would be the memorial for the victims on the site. Yeah, so they, they couldn't really identify, they couldn't pull specific victims out. So you know, that, that story is kind of a little bit um, macabre and yeah. kind of Poe-esque, I guess, right. maybe. But uh, <laughs> they couldn't separate the victims, by and large. They, I think I read about a couple of them that they found um, that, that, were, that they offered to the families, hey, we can bring so-and-so back to your family plot. And the family said, no. She she died with her friends. She should be interred with her friends. And yes. So what what did they do with the remains of, of all the victims coming out of that theater? Well, the case that you're mentioning, there, there were a whole group of girls that were 16, 15, 17 years old who all went to the theater together, who all went to the same uh, school. And, uh, and, yeah, one of the fathers said was actually a comfort to him this mass grave was was something of a comfort to him because he thought she was there with her friends she can sort of rest in peace with her friends and i don't want to pull her out and put her in a family plot away from them and so uh so yes they they eventually decided that instead of trying to move all of these remains in the condition they were in um down what's now broad street and then up the giant hill over to saint john's church which was the public burial ground that they were just going to bury them on site and so they dug a, a giant um, hole they built a crypt and you can still if you get a tour of historic from historic richmond foundation the church you can go downstairs and you can see the crypt big brick crypt apparently it's got two big mahogany caskets inside of it where they put the remains you just put everybody in yeah two containers enslaved free um male female children adults everybody all together you know what are you going to do it's a disaster site so um, so everybody's all together in this in this giant crypt, and then they decided that a uh, fitting memorial uh, needed to be built uh, on this spot to commemorate all the deaths. And that became the monumental church. Mm-hmm. Yes. For for anybody who's uh, been to paramedic school at the Medical College of Virginia, and this was uh, absolutely news to me when I started reading this book, is. Uh, particularly the old East hospital where we went to paramedic school, we overlooked the monumental church and overlooked the grounds of that theater. And it just amazes me that how much I didn't know looking at that site back then. And uh, now how much I'm learning going forward. So that's pretty interesting to me anyway. Talk a little bit more about the aftermath. This was, um, you mentioned the doors, the exit doors going out of this theater opened inward. We all know what problems happened there and, Thankfully, we've learned our lesson. No, wait a minute. We, it took us a few more times <laughs> to learn our lesson that exit doors should open outward. Uh, let's talk about a little bit more, a little bit about what happened in the aftermath of the fire from uh, buildings. And it, let me ask you this: Was you know today today's society the first thing people are going to do is who am I going to sue? Who am I taking to court? I want to make somebody responsible for this. I want. Was any of that happening after this fire? It, well, there's there's some interesting uh some interesting stuff going on with the theater company actually so um i i i suspect that probably some kind of agreement was reached with the theater company itself because people are upset about the state of the building and people do want to hold somebody responsible for it um but uh what ends up happening is the entire theater company basically is told to leave immediately. And so they have, they are counting on staying through the rest of the session. And this is going to be a big part of their income for the year. Uh, but they're told in no uncertain terms, they need to leave town immediately. And they write this sort of sad letter about how, you know, we apologize, but we're really not the ones to blame here. And we regret that we're having to leave Richmond under these conditions, blah, blah, blah. But they take off. And I mean, talk about a bad month. They get in a shipwreck on the way, yeah. on the way back. But um, but the, the council never, I, I feel like there must have been some kind of arrangement. Like, look, we're not going to hold you. And I don't know this, but I, I feel like the way that it unfolds looks like the city council told them, we're not going to hold you responsible, but you need to leave just get out of town. We don't want you around anymore. And so, um, so they take off and yeah, there's no, um, there's no attempt for any kind of court case or, or nobody sues the theater, but they do basically chase them out of town. Gotcha. So what happens with the, the building and, and did, did somebody kind of get a clue? Hey, we need to look at how these buildings are built, maybe add egress corridors that are wider. What did the, did that piece of the puzzle look like going forward? 
So the immediate, so in Richmond, the immediate concern is um, tear down the theater and build this memorial. And so that's what's on their minds. And they actually um, do not, they, they do not allow a theater to be built for almost a decade. So um, their approach to this is we're just not going to have a theater. We're not going to have a fire anymore. We're not going to have a theater. But you do see other theaters in the South, as I was reading different newspapers, other theaters in the South begin to advertise their safety features. They talk about how we've got big windows that open and we've got wide hallways and our doors open, you know, outward instead of inward. And so um, definitely some other theaters and large halls that handle big gatherings, um, they begin to advertise their safety features as a, a real plus to try to draw people in and to you know lay aside any fears in their that, clientele. That could, never, that could never happen here. Not here, no, no. That could never happen here. No, but you don't see any kind of real building codes. Um, what's interesting, um, uh, Robert Mills, who builds the monument, uh, who they hire to build the monument, is famous for his what they call fireproof architecture. And basically what that means is that he uses less wood and more brick. It's not, you know, there's no special he, technology. He did uh, the Washington Monument as he well. He did. That's right, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So did, did that work? Is that, I mean, it's, I, I think I read that the, the next generation of Richmond Theater, they actually had a fire in it there as well. Nothing to this scale. Right. But there was a fire in the next generation as well. Right. Yeah, there was. Um, later on in the in the century, there was a there was a fire that was extinguished, and it happened um, uh, during a show. But uh, but yeah, it was the disaster was averted in that particular yeah, case. They got it out. It sounded like mm-hmm. so they were able to put it out. Yeah. Um, the other interesting note at, at, there was a note in your book about um, the monumental church was built with doors that opened inward as well. It's true. That's, uh, I was like, it, well, it takes, it takes a couple of hits in the head with a hammer maybe to It does. To and, clue. and you know, there's this fascinating article. It's in um, Frank Leslie. There was a Frank Leslie newspaper that was really popular at the time. And there's a, there's a big article about fires in theaters that comes out um, later in the, in the 1800s. And the, the author writes about the fact that really it's, it's business interests that oppose this. It's more expensive to, even in the late 1800s, they have some rudimentary kind of sprinklers. They have the flip-up seats. Um, they have uh, uh, they they know about how to make buildings more safe, but it does cost more, and so they meet a lot of resistance from the business community. Um, and so he sort of lays blame at the at the feet of the business community for refusing to um, to, to build things that are safer. I'm gonna read a quote from the book if I can. Sure, because it's uh, late in the book. And it's, um, it might be the same fellow you're talking about here. It says, in the absence of regulations regarding public buildings, bottom lines often trump public safety concerns. Townsend noted, quote, in America, a theater is a business investment, and the immense cost of fireproof construction is sufficient to banish it at once from the consideration of, a, of an investor of capital. That's true. That's true. And then uh, there's a New York Observer article from 1854 where a man writes an editorial and says, they take a risk. If they go and are burned up, it's their own affair. This is what is meant by liberty and free government. <laughs> so, well, yeah, not a lot of sympathy for safety regulations. And, you know, it, um, the first law really for uh, requiring buildings to be inspected that are meant for public safety um, doesn't happen until 1867. That's in New Orleans. And then in Massachusetts in 1888. And that's they, when they actually allowed fire inspectors to start looking yes. in, looking inside public buildings yeah. mm-hmm. and all that's chronicled in the book that's why i say this is not just a book about the fire it's a book about a lot of other things including the origins of the richmond fire department and uh, the fire brigades that started as a result of this you want to touch on that just for a minute and oh. how how they kind of evolved yes so um so early on uh i mean every town had its sort of uh you can't even say volunteer fire department, but there was a protocol. So people often would have this kind of leather bucket. If you go to Williamsburg and you go into any of the shops that they have there with people reenacting, you'll see these leather buckets that are hanging usually near the door. And so the expectation is that if you have a business or you have a home in the city that you would have this leather bucket 
Um, and oftentimes people would also have some kind of protective hat. And if you hear the alarm, if you start to hear the bells, you grab your bucket and you run out and you become part of the bucket brigade. And so it's just really simple. Someone starts at the water source and you pass the bucket down and you try to put the fire out. Um, that is the very basic level of firefighting. And Richmond is a little past it at this time. And they they started with the Union Fire Brigade, if I'm not, not mistaken, and then other brigades started up, and the, the alarm system was a series of bells based on what ward the fire was occurring in? Exactly, yeah. So the, the, the way that the bells rang would tell you which section of the city you needed to go to, where the fire was. And so you would grab your equipment, and then you would head out. And there was a central location where there was what they called the fire engine, which is essentially a pump. It looks like one of those old, like you get in a railroad. Hand-pulled and hand pumped right. fire engine yeah. yes and so they would hook that up to a water source in some um some cities would have uh kind of a i don't know it was like a they would hook it up kind of to an underground uh underground pipe they had an underground water pipe or some kind of underground gutter system they would hook it up to any source of water um and then you know pump it out and try to get it toward the fire but i mean uh in a case like the Richmond Theater fire that took off so quickly, even by the time they got the fire engine there, it would have been functionally useless. And besides that, the firefighters at the time, they wouldn't go inside the building. That wasn't a thing that they did. They would stand outside and put the water on it. So, And uh, a couple other notes in, in your book about the authority of the fire wardens um, that I thought was pretty amazing. They had the authority to blow up homes in order to stop the spread of fire and imprison obnoxious interfering types. It's true. <laughs> and direct engines to play with full force on those who continue to interfere with his orders. And yes, so one thing that was really interesting to read about at the time was how fires were essentially public entertainment. Like I said, this wasn't particularly grotesque because a lot of times there wasn't big loss of life. So if there's a fire, people would come out, some to help and some just to gawk, and a lot would just get in the way. And so you have these people who are serious about trying to put out a fire, and you have all these annoying people who are standing around getting in their way. And so, um, yes, there was authorization that if people were in your way, you could blast them with the fire hose to get them out. <laughs> Well, the good news is they did away with that because there's been a couple of I would might have liked to have uh, done that to <laughs> over the years, but uh, but I think it's interesting. Eh? Yeah, that you, this is the first book I've seen reference to the fire plug, and you know, that's been always a kind of a phrase that you know, the fire department used: grab the plug, and that the plug is the fire hydrant, and the plug was literally a plug in a in a wooden pipe underground that you knock the plug out, fill the hole up, and that's where you get the, that would be the water source for those engines. That's true. Yes, very rudimentary. Um, sort of uh, water systems at the time. Well, we're uh, close to an hour here. Um, anything else you want to share about the, the fire or uh, what happened then and or or maybe lessons learned that maybe stuck because the door the door opening inward didn't stick. It, it took us a few more tragic fires to No, it it, it didn't. I think um, I think one of the one of the things that it, it does show is that uh, is that change is really slow to happen, and uh, you you don't begin to see uh, standards on a really thorough safety standards on a state level until the 20th century, um, and in a lot of states, not until the 1930s, really until you get building safety codes in place. And it's very frustrating when you read when you when you read accounts. Um, of people who are concerned about fire safety in the 19-teens, in the 1920s, in the 1880s, um, they know what they need to do. It's just a matter of getting public buy-in and a matter of getting the, um, you know, the business community and the public to demand these things because the technology in a lot of these cases exists to save lives. It's just a matter of convincing people to put it into place. <laughs> From the page of the more things change, the more they stay the right. same. That quote from their early 19th century about the cost of the safety is still an argument at code hearings and code meetings today. Yeah, uh, that happens with uh, the various businesses and industries and builders and whatnot. And I've got a scar or two from that, just because you know residential sprinklers. I mean, that's that's one thing that's been in the code since '06. And there's only two states that require residential sprinklers now. So, oh wow! Yeah, so it's a it's a it's an ongoing battle. Let's call it that. Yes, so. yes, and it was you know the other thing too. You write about the a lot of the stories that are in this, and that was really the fun part for me because I mean this book took me several years to write, but um, 
it's it's not hard to do and it was honestly uh it was a lot of fun because it was like solving a mystery. I had so many um, diaries and letters and these newspaper articles. People wrote into the Richmond Inquirer afterwards and said, I was there. This is what happened. Someone else said, I was there. This is what happened. The accounts didn't always match up. And so trying to piece together what happened, you know, minute by minute as this fire is going through the building. And then also trying to figure out, you know, from a fire perspective, like, okay, at this point, people are saying that the building goes black. Um, so what exactly happened or, you know, at what point would the stairs have fallen in? Um, trying to put all those things together, uh, was like solving a little mystery. And so that, that was, um, that made this a lot of fun to write. And there's so many colorful people and lively accounts that, um, that it was, uh, it was just a fascinating episode to, to land on and sit with for a while. How hard was it to f- to find those diaries and letters and those old newspapers and where where were you where were you going to find that um, those reference because this is a heavily referenced I mean there's what thirty or forty pages right. just of footnotes of, of where the information came from where where do you go to get that stuff so I found some really great uh, letters uh, personal letters from uh, at the Library of Virginia in their archives um, I found some great diaries and um, some uh, uh, primary sources about the theater itself and the, the building um, in the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Valentine, um, their archives aren't open right now, but uh, they had some wonderful sources too about Richmond at the time, including um, a lot of information about uh, the uh, Louis Way Jardin, who was the translator, um, and they had an account that was purportedly from him that was there. So uh, a lot of different sources. Richmond's so lucky to have um, some really great archives oh, to dig into. So, so what's next on your agenda? Is there is there another uh, historic fire on your horizon to write about or research or, or what's your next project? So um, so I've I've gone from uh, disaster to uh, rebuilding. So what I'm what I'm looking at right now is actually completely different. Um, the research that I'm doing right now is about. Uh, gardening clubs and <laughs> talk about a change There's of pace, right? Yeah. yeah. But it's about, um, about women's gardening clubs and the way that they, uh, transform the Virginia landscape. So they're mm-hmm. responsible for, um, our, in large part for our state park system and, um, for our highways looking the way that they do. And before cities did, um, especially in segregated neighborhoods, um, did proper beautification and upkeep, these garden clubs would come in and do it. And so I, I think the common thread between these, those two kinds of stories is um, I really love finding episodes in history that, or people in history who really made a difference but who didn't quite make it on the radar. And I think they deserve more attention. And I think that these stories are really powerful and interesting and explain a lot about our society. And so um, that would be, I think, the common thread between something like a disastrous theater fire in the early 1800s and a women's garden club in 1950. Um, they both are more than they appear. Yeah, exactly. And like I said, this is a fire that I kind of vaguely knew about, certainly didn't have any accurate historical information before, uh, before I came across you in this book. So, uh, where can, where can other folks find out more about this book and, uh, get the book and find out any more writings that you may have historically about the fire or anything else you're working on. Yeah. Well, thank you. So I have, um, uh, right now my website is, uh, www.theaterfirebook.com. So you can find some more information there. I've got a victim's list. I've got, um, uh, articles that I've written before and more information about the fire. Um, and then the book itself is published by Louisiana state university press and, uh, you can get it at an, you know, an online bookseller or a bookstore. A lot of the local history museums carry it. Uh, but they are coming out with a paperback version in April. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, new paperback's going to come out. So that's great because it's a little more affordable. And also, um, here's a tip. Um, the <laughs> Louisiana state university press often has um, 40% off sales. Yeah. So that's always a fun time to sort of pick things up. And they've got a lot of great stuff if you're into military history or anything like that they've got some great publications so so i'd recommend checking out their website too neat yeah well uh thanks for coming out today i appreciate the the history lesson and learning about this fire and uh there's probably 50 other questions i'll come up with between here and (laughs) time i get home and uh, maybe we'll get together another one another day and uh, talk more about this one yeah sure all right sure thanks for having me all right meredith henna baker thanks for uh thanks for joining me yeah thanks for having me Thanks again for listening to the Firehouse Logbook Podcast. If you want to support this effort, 
make sure you go over to patreon.com backslash firehouse logbook podcast and become a patron. And if you have any comments or questions, be sure to send them to me at firehouselogbook at gmail.com and follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Thank you.